see if you want to follow along. Matthew 6, verse 19, getting back into the Sermon on the Mount after a couple weeks of, we looked at uh, Palm Sunday and Easter, upper room, crucifixion, lots of, of good things. So this is early in his ministry, probably the first year. Uh, that song we sang is is this kind of hits this because what you have, you have people encounter Jesus uh, in the Gospels, and you can see how all the Gospels kind of do this. Probably Mark the most, but Matthew too. They start. They don't really know who he is yet. I mean, they know he's a, a teacher, uh, and they know he's uh, a healer in some ways. Eventually, they start calling him Lord, and then you'll see him start calling him Savior. And then toward the end, they start realizing that this guy's God and trying to figure how that works, too. Uh, but we're not there yet. But that song we sing, you know, nothing else will do. I just want you. And I think that's what the people are seeing. You, you see this teaching, I guess we call it objective teaching, um, this, this data, this, this Torah is what the Hebrew word for teaching. The, it's very, but it's, there's more than that, right? There's a subjective element to it. It's touching people's hearts. It's not just information. And you see that, and that the Sermon on the Mount does that. It, it's got a lot of good information. We're going to look at it, uh, but it's it's something more. It's that, and that's what the Christian life is all about. Really, it's that knowing the foundational, I guess, doctrine teaching of who Jesus is, and what that means for us, and then having that Spirit, as we talked about, the the wind, the ruach, the breath, to come and change each one of us in a unique way. You know, and that's what this can do. So it's, we call it a living word. Uh, so at this point, a couple weeks ago, we were back, he was talking to the Pharisees in earlier chapter six, where you get the Lord's prayer, the disciples prayer. He was talking about how the, some of the Pharisees have distorted things. And when it came to giving, to praying and to fasting and making it more about them and not about God. Uh, so that was his main thing. Now he's going to go into the Gentiles, the non-Jews is what that word means. Uh, so if you think of all the people in the world at this time, you have Jews and you have Gentiles. There's nothing else. <laughs> so it's, it's exhaustive that way. Um, but they have a different value system. Sometimes it's called the world. Sometimes it's pagan. Sometimes you'll see the word Greek. Uh, but their value system is different, and we're not supposed to follow that. If we had that back in verse 8, do not be like them doesn't mean we're not respectful to them. doesn't mean we're not supposed to tell them about Jesus. It doesn't mean we're not supposed to treat them well, but don't be like them. Um, so what he's going to do, and we'll read through it in just a second here, he places alternatives before us. And Jesus does this a lot. And I, I really like it. Uh, I call it binary because I used to be a math major. You know, zeros and ones. Yes, no. One or the other. And there's no third way on these things. There's two treasures. There's a treasure on earth. There's a treasure in heaven. There's two spiritual conditions. There's one that's in light and one that's in darkness. And there's two masters, God or wealth. And that's what he's using here. So let's read through, starting verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. 
No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So, again, very binary here. Um, the first one, it's a question of treasure. And I think this is, we kind of know this, uh, if you know the Bible at all, that the treasure's in heaven. Uh, so the main point of contrast is durability. Uh, how long is this treasure going to last? You know, moth and rust. Uh, what was Jesus prohibiting when he told us not to lay up treasures for ourselves on earth? Um, well, it, sometimes it's good to understand that by figuring out what he's not prohibiting. Uh, because we're going to have this just after this about things on earth. This is not a ban on possessions themselves. Um, some people took it that. Some of the early Christians did that. Uh, didn't work out very well. By the time you get to Acts 6, you're like, that isn't working. <laughs> so it's uh, might work in the new heaven and the new earth. I don't know. We're not in that. Uh, the Bible nowhere forbids private property. Uh, I mean, you have to have private property, but it nowhere forbids it. Think about one of the uh, ten commandments. depends on which version of the commandments you're going. It's either seven or eight. Thou shalt not steal. Well, don't you have to have property for it to be stolen? I mean, isn't that just logic? If everybody owns everything, then I'm not stealing it. I'm just taking it. So, I mean, nowhere does it forbid that, uh, to have it. And he'll hit that harder in the last one here. What about saving and providing for your family? Is that something that, that uh, we should not do because that's earth? You know, well... I'm going to turn over to Proverbs 6 here. And listen, this is kind of a metaphor. Uh, go to the ant, O sluggard. <laughs> I like that term, sluggard. That's not a term of endearment, if you didn't know that. If somebody calls you a sluggard, don't say thanks. That's, that's a bad word. Uh, Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief office, officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So you, you look at these, it's like it's a metaphor for the ant. It's just the idea that hard work is good. You think about it. When Adam and Eve, Adam, I guess starting off, and I'm sure Eve got thrown into this too, but Adam, what was he put in the garden to do? Anybody remember? Work. It's like work's supposed to be a good thing. It kind of depends on what work you're doing, I think. Um, and remember afterwards, after the fallenness, that's when you had to put anhydrous on and you have all the pesticides and herbicides and all other sides. You didn't have to have it back then. Um, but you still had to do a little work, right? We, you know, Jesus tells us to pray, um, give us this day our daily bread, but I, don't, I think the implication is you're probably going to have to plant a bit of wheat to get it. And if you don't understand that, uh, is that chicken little or henny penny? I can't remember. You know, one of them, you know, they cook the, she cooks all the stuff and nobody helps. Everybody's looking at me. He's like, little red hen. Okay, it wasn't even henny penny. I don't even know where that came from. <laughs> anyway, the little red hen. Yeah, there you go. Just go to that. We won't go any farther because that's the rabbit trail I'm not going down. But, but again, work is good, you know, having an industrious way. Six days you shall work. The next day you shall rest. And I think that's the idea, that work is a good thing. And, you know, you think about it in America, we've got 
a few kids that are coming into uh, graduating, and most of them aren't here because their prom lasted till way too long. Those who are here are probably tired, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but, but you know, you, you know, in America, this isn't true everywhere, and it wasn't probably true for most people back then. We can actually kind of choose our vocation to some extent. It depends on where you are. Not everybody can. But that's a blessing. Take that, you know. I can choose to be, you know, uh, a teacher. I can choose to be a doctor. I can choose. I mean, you have to work at it, but you have those choices that are there. And then First Timothy says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So, yes, these things are treasures on earth, but they're still good. So we're not to despise, but rather enjoy the good things the Creator has given us. A little earlier in 1 Timothy, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. You know, it's the whole, you know, we do this at Thanksgiving, right? It's like, what are you thankful for? You know, maybe we should do that all the time. You know, what are you thankful for? Uh, everything God has given us is good and perfect gifts that he wants us. So what is he prohibiting? If he's not prohibiting, you know, providing for our family and material things and working and all these things, well, it's the selfish accumulation of goods. That's the idea. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. And he hits this really hard in this little parable in Luke 12, which is one of my favorites, um, to kind of give us an idea of what this looks like. Uh, he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample good laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, which is not a good start. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So it's a matter of priority, right? What is more important? Again, I don't think, I suppose, I mean, we've got farmers here. If you need more grain, I suppose you build another grain bin. Oh, you put it out as you drive by some places, it's just out on the ground. You know, it's, it seems they wash that or something, I don't know. But, but I think, again, it's not the idea that you have. It's, it's that you see, you know, I've got everything I need, you know. And, you know, I don't know what the implication is there. But first, you know, we have that in Corinthians where it says you will be enriched in every way so you can be generous in every way. And there's not a lot of generosity in this, guys. So, so remember, the Sermon on the Mount repeatedly refers to the heart. You know, what's your motive? What's your purpose for doing this. Do not store up treasures on earth does not forbid planning, but greed. It attempts to stop us from being foolish. Earthly treasure will not last, but treasure in heaven will. You know, maybe the implication here in Luke 12 is that, you know, now I've got what I need. I can, maybe you could have started something, a, a school, or tried to help other people, or tried to get closer to God, or print more Bibles, or whatever. I don't know something that was kingdom building and not just himself building. So treasure in heaven, shouldn't we figure out what this is? It'd be kind of nice. Uh, well, it's pretty easy, right? Anything you do on earth 
whose effects last for eternity. And here's some example: developing a Christ-like character. Do you think that'll stop once we, once the new heaven and new earth is here? Are we gonna just kind of just kind of just coast after that, or does that develop more? Yeah, I think you can make a case for the latter. Increasing in faith, trusting in God. You know, that's something you can last. You know, wait till we get to chapter 7, the scariest verse in the Bible, in my opinion. Get away from me. I never knew you. You know, we talk about, we talked about that at the, at the welcome, knowing God through His Word, through His Spirit, through His church. But Jesus doesn't say that there, although that's implied. It's, he doesn't know us. That, you want him to know you, you know, and that trusting in him, praying to him, you know, what a privilege to be able to pray to the creator of the universe, being able to worship him, which we're doing, to being able to understand his word, have his spirit to be with us, all these things. Introducing others to Christ, you know, I think that'll be kind of cool when you die and you, maybe somebody comes up to you and I don't know how that works because we don't have bodies. I'm not even going to try to draw that for you. Wouldn't it be neat if somebody said, you know, you said something to me at Walmart that made me think of Jesus, and it's one of the reasons I'm here. That'd be pretty cool. Sometimes we don't even know, you know. But that's the thing, how, you know, living, those things will last. Using our money for God-honoring causes, back to this, you know, what can we do with it? Um, God loves a cheerful giver. I love that verse. That's our stewardship sermon. And you just got it for the year, so there you go. Cheer up, give. How much? Don't know. Tithing's an Old Testament thing. I don't know. Give whatever you feel you should. Give it to this to church? I don't know. Give it to wherever you want. What if we run out of money? I get another job. It's not that hard. But be cheerful. I mean, if you're not cheerful, I wouldn't give it. Ooh. Pastors can say that. I wouldn't. I mean, why? Because God doesn't want you to give us a grumble person. But you think about that. You know, you, you look at the the different missionaries we support, the, the, the fact that kids are getting taught and adults are getting taught, uh, making, teaching each person to trust in Jesus. Or, you know, all this stuff that we do as a church, you know, you're part of that by your time, service, your prayer, and, and your money. But this, you know, I've got this underlined and highlighted, so you know this is important, right? Christian relationships. I think that's the treasure. Well, it's probably not quite right because you've got, you've got the main relationship, you know, is with God. That's what you've got to cultivate. That is treasure. And then the, the relationship with each other. That's all you got when it's all said and done. That's all that matters. Ultimately. It does it, and things can help that. You know, I like my iPad. It's cool. I've got 114 versions of the Bible on here in nine different languages, four of which I know. <laughs> and I think uh, one pretty good and three kind of, eh. but yeah, this is it, isn't it? This is why it's so important. This is the church, folks. The church is never a building in the Bible. It's always a people. And that's it. How do I develop those? Because that's what keeps going. Because those never get exhausted. You're never going to exhaust your relationship with God. 
you're never going to exhaust your relationship with each other. That is the cool part about reality of what God made. Never exhaust. You've probably been here. That's times, you know, you go on vacation or maybe it's here and you're talking and you, you just have that time. It's like, man, I wish we didn't have to go. I'm thinking in heaven you won't even, maybe you won't even have one of these things. I don't know. But how am I going to get my text? Anyway. <laughs> you know, it's, it's going to just keep, uh, it's, you, you don't have to worry about that. Uh, I don't know. You don't have to worry, period. We'll get to that in a couple weeks. But that's it. This is, I think that's the treasure. Everything that goes with that, that keeps, that keeps going. So then a question, a question of vision. He goes into this, the eye is the lamp of the body, the darkness, the idea of darkness and light, a, a metaphor that's used a lot in John, but certainly obviously used here too. And you think about it, in Matthew 23, and I'm not going to go there, but you can go there later if you want. Uh, Woe to you, scribes, hypocrites, you blind guides. He just keeps going on, blind guides. It's a metaphor. They can see, but they don't see the truth. And he hits that really hard. If you want to know why, one of the reasons Jesus got crucified, the main reason is because that was what planned all along. But why did they really hate him? Read Matthew 23. This is not the Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people. I could just see the disciples saying, shut him up. I mean, they're getting the guards, you know. And he just keeps going. You know, and, I, and, I, and in, in Greek, there's no punctuation, but these are all imperatives. Jesus is yelling here. So it should be like really, really deep red letter then. But he goes into that, but that's the idea. You are blind guides. You, you're, you know, and if, if to, a blind guide's going to lead you right into the pit, right into destruction. But John hits that light and darkness. You see that in the first chapter. The light has come into the world, and the darkness shall not overcome it, you know. Uh, well, you see this in John 3, 8, and 12. In John 3, this is just a little bit after that wind verse, and this is judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. I remember reading one book that talked about, you know, sometimes we're like cockroaches, which is probably not a compliment. When the light goes on, what do they do? They go under the refrigerator. But that's just it. When the light comes on, what do you do? If, if Jesus showed up at your house, what would you need to hide? <laughs> I've got my list. I mean, you know. I mean, you think about what do I need to hide? And then you think about, well, it's like it really doesn't have to show up. He's God. He can kind of see it already. But this is the idea. They love the darkness rather than the light. That's the hard part, you know, lead us not into temptation, forgive us our sins, all those types of things. It's why, because the temptation is to not even want to get to a point of conquering the sin. We, do, oh, we love the darkness. In John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But that's an ongoing thing. John 12, very similar I have come into the world as light so that whatever believes, whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So light, that's, that's, you know, that's what he's talking about. He doesn't ask us to seek light in general, but himself is the light. I am the light. Um, that's a metaphor, but it's a good metaphor, isn't it? He, 
He's the light. That's, in fact, in Revelation 21, which is the new heaven and the new earth, and you don't need the sun and moon anymore because the light of Yahweh brightens the earth. That's kind of cool. And I don't know if that's a metaphor. Maybe there'll still be a sun and a moon. But it's like that's what we want. No darkness anymore. That's, and that's, again, metaphor. I, I suppose if you close your eyes, you can still sleep. I don't know. You think we'll sleep in heaven? That's a rabbit trail. Let's move on. Um, <laughs> I know some people who really like sleep. So I suppose maybe. I don't know. I guess you got all the time in the world. I told you that was a rabbit trail. We're not going down it. So just as blindness leads to darkness, so selfish ambition, storing up treasures on earth, plunges us into moral darkness. It becomes, becomes self-centered. Jesus' first point about treasure has to do with durability, but this point here shows us another benefit, the earthly vision we have when we follow the light from heaven. We see differently. You know, when you have Christ in your heart, when you have the Holy Spirit, everything looks different. You know, I remember praying myself, saying, Lord, let me see that person or this issue through your eyes. And I'm like, no, wait a minute. I wouldn't understand that. Uh, if you remember Bruce Almighty with all those sticky notes? I mean, I, I don't have, you know, we, we're not omniscient. But maybe better prayer would be, Lord, help me see it the way you want me to see it. Because any time relationships start to get strained, we don't see it that way, right? When the woman caught in adultery is brought to Jesus, he could have saw her as a sinner, that it was in des deserved punishment. But he didn't see her that way, did he? He saw her differently. He saw her as a potential believer, <laughs> as a follower of him that can get thrown out of the darkness and put into the light. And that's kind of the way we're supposed to see it. You see these... The second Kings one I love, I don't know if you remember this one or not, but there's a time when Elisha, which I didn't name these guys, Elijah's protege, uh, they're in a city and the foreign king is coming to kill Elisha and the servant. And the servant is scared. Um, and Elisha is not. Well, Why? Then Elisha prayed and said, Oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire. That's where that comes from. All around Elisha. That, and he's, when, when Elijah gets to go in chariots of fire. It's like, so Elisha was seeing all of God's spiritual powerful beings there to protect them. The, the young man couldn't see it until his eyes were open. They were already there. Now, I don't want to get, but, I mean, who knows, right? Do you think there's angels in worship service? I always wondered that. Maybe we'll know that later. That is a rabbit trail you do not want to go down right now. But, because you don't want to worry about that. But the Lord protects us, right? I remember my grandma had a picture of a couple little kids going across a bridge. It was kind of dark in the background. And they're kind of, yeah, they're holding each other's hands. They're just little. <laughs> I will, <laughs> but the, but in the and then you see this angel, and it's just I, I just love that. I always think, you know you never know. I mean, God does what He wants; He can protect us the way He wants. But this is just a neat account of seeing. And then in Psalm one nineteen, which is very long, 
It's all about the law, the teaching. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Wouldn't it be nice if we went to the Bible to know God, not to look for loopholes? We do that, right? Well, I'd like to sin. I wonder if I can find a way out. You know, or just tell me what I need to do. You know, when we don't look at it as a relationship or a connection. And Psalm 119 is very long, but it's all about how important the law is. And then in Acts 26, I like this. This is one of the renditions that Paul, I think there's three of them in Acts, Paul's spiritual experience on the road to Damascus. And the Lord said, he's talking to Agrippa here. He's on trial. This is late in the book. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Remember on the road to start chapter 9 is where you get the first rendition of this. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things of which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Same metaphor, Jesus talking to Paul, that they will turn from darkness to light. And how does that happen? That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by the faith. That metaphor keeps going. So that's kind of what Jesus is talking about here. Well, how do we see things? And that's a great prayer. Throw that on your list. Lord, may I see the things of my day, the way you want me to. And then maybe continue and maybe I act in a way that you want me to after I see it. So you have the question of treasure, the question of light and darkness, and then you have this question of worth. You can't serve God and wealth. Really, the, the, the money, that mammon word is, is wealth. It's uh, assets, money, and power that comes with it. So you can't serve both, although many of us try. I don't know. If God said, do you want to win the lottery? They still have that? Do they? I've never bought a ticket. I think it's a tax on the mathematically impaired, but that's another. The, uh, what would you say? I'd probably say yes. I think I could handle it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You'd all help me, right? If I won the lottery, if you won the lottery, you're going to have a lot more friends, aren't you? And I think, you know, it's, it, it's due diligence for a pastor to visit, right? Would you be cheerful enough? To <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, you see what I mean? It's hard. I actually read a book in seminary about 10 people who won the lottery. And it destroyed nine of their lives. One it did not. And you know what she did with it? She gave all of it away. Made a foundation. I think she bought a new truck or something. Which, you know, wow. I'm like, I don't think I could do that. But again, it, it, you know, we think we can do this. We think we can. And again, I don't think it means it's bad. Money's not bad. And nowhere does it say in the Bible that money is the root of all evil. You miss that. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. And that's what it says. You will either hate the one and love the other or will be devoted to one and despise the other. 
So something, well, why do you have to have an outright choice? Why does he have to make this either money or God? And that's why he uses the language of slavery here. You know, you might be able to work for two employers. Some of you do, but you can't be the property of two owners. You know, who is pulling the strings? Who is changing you? And you think about when you look at Matthew 4, this is during the temptation where Jesus says, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall, not, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You know, that's the idea. God's asking us for total allegiance, you know, all, everything of our life. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount and the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, this is a really high bar. It's really high. It's none of this lukewarm stuff, which why I put the Revelation 3 in there. I love this. This is the Church of Laodicea. Where Jesus, you know, have those seven, we did, we did a sermon series on that, Revelation 1 through 3, because, yeah, I'm just too darn scared to do 4 through 22. Uh, but I know your works, Jesus says to them. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you would either be hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And you can kind of get that idea, can't you, you know? I always hate lukewarm coffee. You know, it's just like I always throw it in the microwave. The microwaves back then weren't near as good as ours, but you can suck, put it in there for 40 seconds and warm, or a nice cold iced tea, you know, the lukewarm. It's that idea is there, but it's the idea that you're neither hot nor cold. You're kind of following Jesus, and you're kind of following wealth. Jesus says you can't do that. Uh, I, I want, and why does he say it'd be better if you were cold? Sometimes the hardest person to tell the gospel to is somebody who thinks they already know it, but doesn't follow it. That's hard. Who were the people in Jesus' life that most resisted his message? The people who already knew the gospel, knew the Old Testament. You know, who were the ones that seemed to just grab onto it? Tax collectors and sinners, because they knew they had a problem. You know, that woman that comes who we know is a prostitute and probably isn't Mary Magdalene, but that's another discussion. She comes into Simon the Pharisee's house and washes his feet with her tears and dries his feet with her hair. And I mean, think about this. This is a teacher who's pretty young, too young to be on any council. He's in, been invited to the Pharisee's house and a prostitute comes and starts kissing his feet. That would be a little weird, but he didn't care. That was, she knew. She, she needed to be forgiven much. And sometimes I think that's what he's talking. When you realize you're cold, when you realize that there is no hope for your future, that you are a sinner in the hands of an angry God, or however you want to put it, that you're under God's wrath, then you can start looking for the light. But if we're kind of lukewarm, it's like, well, I got some light. That's good. And I think that's what he's talking. You can't serve both here. So you can certainly use money to serve God, but you can't use God to serve money. It doesn't work that way. God's not, you can't throw God in a box. So you are welcome to pray to win the lottery. I would buy a ticket. It'd be easier. But think about what you would do with it. And yeah, I'm still going to, if God says, I'm going to give it a shot. <laughs> 
I don't, I don't know why. Maybe there'll be a day I'll be spiritually mature enough to say, no, I don't want it because it's a treasure house on earth. But think of what we could do. I mean, we need a gym, I think. We can get one of those. Um, well, that's selfish, right? No, that's for you. I forgot. It's for you guys. Uh, but again, th- don't we do that? You know, it's just like, well, I think other people would use it. But, but there's nothing wrong with, I think, using things that God gives us for good purposes. That's not what this is talking about. You know whether you're serving it or not, I think. Ultimately, the worth of these two treasures is tied to their intrinsic value. Is their intrinsic value, value that's there no matter what. The value of God, who's the creator, sustainer, redeemer, infinite and loving, or money, a means to an end has no infinite worth. It just turns to dust. I remember as a little kid getting a $20 bill. And for you little kids now, that's like a gazillion dollars now. Inflation. No, I don't know what that would be. I'd have to do my calculation. It'd probably be 500 bucks, I suppose. I don't know. And you think you just had all the money in the world. And then I lost it. What do you do? Go to the bank and say, I lost a 20. Will you give me another? <laughs> it's gone. It just falls away. It's worth, it's worth nothing. It's nothing there. It, it it doesn't have, it's a token anyway. So that's the idea. You know, money is a means to an end, and, and God shovels it in sometimes through our life so we can shovel it back out and do the things He wants us to do, and that's good. And you, you smile when you do that, you know. It's, it's great. I think it, some of the most faithful people I've ever met have a good chunk of money, and some of the most faithful I've, people I've ever met don't have much. And I've seen nasty people on both sides of that, too. It's just a question of your heart. Uh, That's the way we have to look at it. And don't worry about it. You know, you know which one you're serving. 1 Timothy 6. For we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of this world. When you die, you're the only thing left. And not even your body, for gosh sakes. It's just your soul. So store up for yourself those relationships. Do I have a relationship with the Father through the Son by the power of the Spirit? Then you're good. And we talk about that at funerals. We talk about that. You think about that in your own life. If you died today, and I'm not wishing that on you, I know the wind's going to blow, but I don't know the rest of the stuff. Who would you look up? You know, that's, that's it. Because those are, you're probably not thinking... You know, all you know. Do you want your '74 Camaro? I mean, well, maybe, but hopefully, you look up people first, right? So, as often the case in the life of a follower of Jesus, he asks us to choose between two alternatives: him or not him is one. Treasure in heaven, not treasure on earth. His light, not the world's darkness, and him over wealth. He's just. Bar's high. He wants all. He wants us to develop and focus our minds on Him, our, our hearts and our wills to serve and trust Him above all else. Why does He do that? Because He's egocentric? Well, because He's God. He knows this is the best thing for us. God's never going to ask you to do something that's not ultimately a treasure in heaven. So let's just follow Him as Lord always. Let us pray. Father, we know this uh, teaching can come and hit us pretty hard, especially if we do have some wealth or we, we do have treasure here that we think is important. We know that you give us what we need, and often, by your grace, you give us what we want, 
But may each one of us always put you first, number one, knowing that the treasure of knowing you and knowing others that know you is the most important thing in the universe. Amen.